Welcome to the SCOTUS Blog Podcast. I'm Adam Schlossman. I'm here today with Ed Menino to discuss his book, Shaping America, the Supreme Court and American Society, published by the University of South Carolina Press. Ed is a practicing trial lawyer and legal historian. He has been named one of the nation's top litigators by the National Law Journal and is listed in all editions of Chambers USA America's Leading Lawyers for Business as recommended in commercial and or securities litigation. Ed, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Adam. To start, can you just talk briefly about the book and and why you decided to write it? Well, from 2001 through 2006, I taught undergraduate history courses at the University of Pennsylvania where I was also practicing law. And one of the courses I was asked to teach was U.S. legal history. So I looked for a book that would be good on both the law and the history on the Supreme Court and was unable to find one that I liked. So I decided to write one. Five years later, I had a manuscript. And a year after that, we had uh, reviews from outside anonymous reviewers come back. The book was accepted and it was published late last year. The book is really a comprehensive history of the Supreme Court from the very beginning through the end of the uh, June 2008 uh, sitting. And what we've tried to do is to look at cases in virtually all civil areas uh, with particular stress on business, religion, and civil liberty. So that's that's what the book does, and uh, it is very comprehensive. You say that the court was designed as an institutional barrier to rapid political and social change. Can you explain that a little bit further, and kind of how do you see that affecting the current court and the uh, and the Obama presidency? I think it's going to be a major issue uh, for issues such as health care and the validity and constitutionality of that uh, legislation. What I mean by that is if you look at the uh, history of the judges, quite a few now have served on the court for over 30 years. We have several justices who are in their 50s now, and they may be there for 25 or 30 years. Keep in mind that they tend to reflect what the political philosophy was at the time they were appointed. So as part of the system of checks and balances, you have a president and a Congress that are elected anywhere from two to four to six years. But Supreme Court justices are appointed and may serve for 25 or 30 years. So there's an institutional barrier, I think, to modernizing everything at once. And I think the Supreme Court was designed that way. If you look at Chief Justice uh, Hughes, who served as governor of New York, Chief Justice of the United States, and then ran unsuccessfully for president against Woodrow Wilson in 1916, he said that the separation of powers and checks and balances in the Constitution is what he called, and I quote, the greatest instrument ever designed to prevent things from being done, unquote. And that's somewhat funny, but it's actually very much on point, because you see justices who are reflecting 20 and 30 years ago uh, theories. And I'm not just talking about the current justices. You look at someone like Brandeis, who was considered to be a great liberal appointed to the court by uh, Woodrow Wilson. He voted against the constitutionality of the National Industrial Recovery Act in Schechter, and he voted against the Fraser-Lemke Bankruptcy Act that had mortgage uh, moratoriums uh, in the Radford case. So... That's what I meant by that. It is an institutional barrier because it's reflecting an older viewpoint. Interestingly enough, Justice Kennedy, in a very famous concurring opinion in a case called Clinton versus City of New York, which involved the constitutionality of the line-item veto, 
He said that, and again, I'm quoting, separation of powers helps to ensure the ability of each branch to be vigorous in asserting its proper authority. Now, what's going to happen now uh, in some cases, including but not limited to the Health Care Act, is there are going to be significant challenges to constitutionality. We have uh, a self-described transformational presidency uh, assisted by the Congress, so people are going to look at acts that are a little bit different than things they've seen before. There obviously already have been serious, colorable constitutional challenges made to the Health Care Act, particularly on the individual mandate. And while I think that gets up to the Supreme Court, assuming that it does, the Supreme Court will be vigorous, I believe, in asserting its proper authority and reviewing it, and reviewing it through the lens of many of the justices who have been on the court for a number of years who are reflecting older values than the current values of the president and the legislature. Can you discuss a little bit about the role that public opinion and the relationship of public opinion in the Supreme Court? I can, and that's actually a very timely and interesting question, because we have people like Barry Friedman in his book, The Will of the People, talking about Uh, the importance of public opinion and how the Supreme Court is reflecting public opinion. In my book, Shaping America, I say there are really three things that explain what the court does. The most important of the three is what I call the prevailing political philosophy. In other words, what's out there at the time that the justices have accepted and imbibed uh, as part of their training and education and learning on the bench uh, and in academia. And I developed this in the book by pointing out that if you look at the Civil War amendments cases, which are cases that have been very much criticized for restricting uh, the 14th Amendment in particular, but also the 13th, that can be traced, as I trace it in the book, directly to the free labor philosophy, which started before Abraham Lincoln and pretty much uh, ruled the roost in terms of judicial philosophies and political philosophies for the last half of the 19th century. Right? That's the most important thing, and that's what I'm talking about when I say the justices tend to reflect what the political philosophy was when they took the bench, uh, the Supreme Court bench. But I think there are two other topics that, that really help to explain why the Supreme Court does what it does. One is independent judges who are forceful. I give the example of many of them in the, in the book. Justice Fields, for example, was very, very influential in the last half of the 19th century in setting the grounds for things like substantive due process. The third factor, which is the one you're asking about, is public opinion. And I, I differ with uh, Professor Friedman on that. I don't think public opinion sways the court in all cases. If it did, we would probably have school prayer back in the, case, in the, uh, in the school. But I do think in certain areas where there's intense public interest, public opinion can and does sway the court. And I'll give you two recent examples. One is the gun rights case, Heller, the original one, and McDonald to some degree, too. I think every poll that's taken, people are very, very excited about having guns to their own protection and very fearful that guns may be taken away from them. Similarly, in the Seattle School District case on pupil assignment and whether you can consider race and how you can consider race, Again, the, the court came out in both Heller uh, and McDonald and Seattle School District the way public opinion does. So I think there are those areas where the court does seem to be influenced by public opinion, but other areas, particularly involving other civil liberties, where the court does uh, buck against the trend of public opinion. How do you see the recent additions of Justices Sotomayor and Kagan impacting the court? 
Well, it's very interesting because you're going to have four justices who are either 60 years old, which is what I think Justice Alito is now, or below. So, again, the, the, the issue that I identified at the beginning of justices being on the court for 20, 25, 30, 35 years is a realistic possibility for all four of them. And uh, I think the key to the court is going to be those four justices, two liberals, two conservatives, and any future justices that may replace some of the older justices that are there now. Where I see a dramatic difference occurring is in the First Amendment religion case. And I think it's partially due to the additions of Sotomayor and Kagan, but actually more interestingly due to the absence of Justices Stevens and Souter. Justice Stevens, as his recent biographers uh, pointed out, has been the most hostile judge to religion on the court at the time that he served on the court. Justice Souter was a close second. In areas such as aid to what were called pervasively sectarian schools, I think that doctrine will be thrown aside. Uh, There's a case called Mitchell versus Helms in 2000, where Justice Thomas wrote a plurality opinion for four judges where he said that the doctrine relating to pervasively sectarian schools was a doctrine, and I quote, born in bigotry and deserves to be buried now, unquote. So four justices felt that 10 years ago. I think with the addition of Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, there will be a fifth justice who will feel the same way as well. Plus, you also have Roberts and Alito since that time uh, coming on to the court. Interestingly enough, some of the memos that were featured on SCOTUS blog that the new Justice Kagan wrote seem to evince a hostility to the pervasively sectarian doctrine, and some of the civil liberties organizations were very concerned about that and thought that they might have to oppose her because she would permit aid to pervasively sectarian schools, which is sort of code word for Catholic schools. I think another area, and the last one I'll talk about, is the use of religion in the public square. How much can religion be kept in the public square? I'm not talking about the monuments cases or the Ten Commandments cases. What I'm talking about is cases like Christian Legal Society and the ability of religious voices to talk in public fora. I think this has been something where Justice uh, Scalia has been particularly outspoken uh, saying that there's a need for that. And I think that with Justice Alito's opinion, dissenting opinion last year in the Christian Legal Society case, four justices joined that, or three uh, Chief Justice, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. I think you're going to see a, a larger role for permissible use of religion, even in public schools, but certainly in public discussions. You told me it took you several years to do the research and, and write this book. Was there anything in your research that, that really surprised you? Yeah, I, I would say the largest uh, or the longest chapter in the book, although some of the chapters deal with the same issue in multiple chapters, but the longest single chapter in the book is the chapter on religion and the First Amendment. And what I was surprised by and found myself agreeing with uh, Justice Scalia on this is that the, there is no principled basis for the Establishment Clause cases. They're based on bad history, which most people admit that Justice Black, Justice Black's opinion in Everson is just bad history. If you look at the Philip Hamburger work, for example. Uh, but I was really surprised at the ideological incoherence. We don't have a good Establishment Clause opinions or, or standards. That's why all these cases are fragmented so much. And frankly, that did, that did surprise me. Last question. How does the Supreme Court properly adapt to changes in political power? 
Well, I think what happens is you have a progression over time. And, I mean, when you have a sudden transformation, whether it's the New Deal or, or some of the current initiatives of the Obama administration, the court tends to recoil from that. And, again, I look at the New Deal experience. The New Deal judiciary changed constitutional law not only significantly but fundamentally. That was a fundamental transformation. But keep in mind that didn't happen in the first term of President Franklin Roosevelt. In fact, many of the cases, uh, most of the cases in his first term, invalidated the constitutionality on constitutional grounds, uh, things like the National Industrial Recovery Act, the Fraser Lenthe Act, the first Agricultural Adjustment Act, for example. And it wasn't until his second term uh, that changed. And why did it change? Well, Franklin Roosevelt did not have an appointment to the Supreme Court until 1937. Remember, he was elected in November of 1932, the first time. And from 1937, for the next less than six years, he made eight new appointments. There were actually only seven that were new because Justice Burns only served for one year and he was replaced by another person. But... By the time Roosevelt died, he had replaced seven of the nine justices on the court. And I think that's the way the court changes. The court changes by the president having the ability, with the advice and consent of the Senate, to suggest new judges, to appoint new judges, and for the Senate to ratify or reject those justices. That's the way it changes. I don't think he can change it otherwise. I think one of the problems is that I see uh, is a lot of institutional attacks on the court now from the president and the State of the Union message, from the legislature, from a lot of bloggers and newspaper columnists. I find that a shame because things have to work their way through. And if there is a second Obama administration or a second uh, liberal administration, things will sort themselves out over time. So I believe that that's the way it changes. It changes through the way the Constitution set it up with the judges, uh, justices being appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. And that's the way things change. Again, the book is Shaping America, the Supreme Court in American Society, published by the University of South Carolina Press. Ed Benina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Adam. I enjoyed it.